My name's Richard Upton and I'm the Associate Director of the Bodleian Libraries and it's my great pleasure indeed to welcome you to this fourth lecture in the series Scholarship, Publishing and the Dissemination of Research. Through this series of lectures and the associated seminars and other events, we are seeking to widen understanding in the university of the critical issues that surround the creation of new research and the dissemination of the outputs of that new research and to stimulate debate within Oxford around the topic of the challenges in contemporary scholarly communications that um, permeate this whole, this whole field and are moving so rapidly at the moment. We're delighted to welcome Sir Mark Walpert as our lecturer today. As director of the Wellcome Trust, Sir Mark is responsible for one of the world's most powerful research funding organisations investing over £600 million annually in biomedical research worldwide. The Trust has made very public its policy steps in this area, and the Trust's investment in research activity in Oxford is very considerable indeed, and his remarks today will, I'm sure, be particularly pertinent to our theme. Sir Mark is also a member of the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology, the UK-India Roundtable, and the Advisory Board for Infrastructure UK. His distinctions are not just confined to the UK. He's also a member of numerous international bodies, including the Scientific Board of Grand Challenges in Global Health and the Council of Global HIV Vaccine Enterprise. So I think you'll agree we could hardly, hardly have someone more um, uh, eminent and well qualified to give this, this lecture today. So it's my great pleasure to invite Sir Mark Walker to speak to us on the role of open access in maximising the impact of biomedical research. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I think it's fair to say that for most of my academic career, the mechanism of dissemination of scholarship was a matter of, I think it's probably fair to say, no interest to me at all. Um, it was just something I took for granted. Um, but it is actually an extraordinarily important topic um, for two reasons. Firstly, scholarship is actually incomplete until it's disseminated. And I learned that fairly on. I was taught, well, it's all very well to discover something, but until you've published it, it hasn't really happened. Um, and secondly, and most importantly, I think in many ways, for the consumer, knowledge is power. And that's a topic that I'll return to in a few minutes. So like most academics, my goal at Imperial College was to do research to answer hopefully important research questions, um, and then to publish in what I perceived to be the most prestigious journals. And like almost everyone, um, when it came to submitting a paper to a journal for publication, there was a whole load of small print, uh, which I didn't read terribly carefully. Um, I ticked the box, and in doing so, actually signed away the copyright to my research, uh, which is, when you think about it, an extraordinary thing to do. And for most of you who are still publishing research, that's what you do frequently as well. Now, the other thing is that the finances of publishing were completely invisible to me as a producer and end user. So I submitted a paper, and no money visibly changed hands, um, although that changed a bit towards the end of my time publishing research when page charges started to come in and submission fees in some cases. And then equally, 
the paper would arrive in the library, uh, typically a few months after the time of acceptance, so that's now got much faster. And again, as far as I was concerned, no money had changed hands. So for publishers, academic publishing has been an absolutely splendid business uh, because it's a very inefficient market. The producers and end users have been effectively blind to the economics of journal publishing. And there have been no very effective levers to drive down the costs when, as far as academics are concerned, it's the prestige and the brand of the journal that matters above everything else. So I then saw the other side of the problem when I became one of the editors of a British immunology journal called Clinical Experimental Immunology, which was in fact jointly owned by a society, the British Society for Immunology, and Blackwell Publishing. And the editors used to have an annual meeting with the publisher. And, of course, the costs of that journal were high to libraries, and I'll come back to that. And each year, the subscriptions to the journal were falling, uh, not hugely, but by between, say, 5 and 7%. And therefore, the argument from the publishers each year was that in order to maintain precisely the same income to both the publisher and the British Society of Immunology, the journal subscription, therefore, needed to be increased by, let's say, 8 or 9 or 10% to compensate for the falling subscriptions and hold the, the, the income. And I and my co-editors got quite perturbed by this and said, well, if we keep racking up the charges in this way, uh, we're going to end up with the journal collapsing. And the argument back from the publishers was, well, don't worry about this. This has always worked. And so, in a sense, it has continued. But the, pub, the, the librarians, of course, have, throughout all of this, been only too aware of the problems because, of course, the economics of general publishing are about as transparent as you can imagine if you're a librarian. And, for example, the Association of Research Librarians looked at the cost of general publishing from 1986 to 2006 and over that period, the average cost of a single serial, just a single title, increased by about 180%. And in fact, the total serial expenditure by libraries over the same period was 321% increase. And of course, that reflects the fact not only that the unit price was going up, but the volume of the uh, scholarly literature has gone up dramatically as well. And I've used the library journal data um, since then, and I reckon there's another 20% increase in the average cost of a single serial from 2006 to now. And so that's something over 200%. And that compares with consumer price index inflation in the US and the UK of between 100 and 125% over the same time period. So it's more than double other measures of inflation. And to contextualize this, the average cost of a chemistry title in 2011 is $3,676. Um, and a biology journal, about $1,900. And that's the average price. And of course, there's a very wide range. So we have a big financial problem. But there's also an access problem. And that is that if you want to read the material, by and large, 
it's only available to those that are the beneficiaries of a subscription. And this is completely unnecessary because the world has changed extraordinarily over the last 20 years. And in some ways, it's a short time because it's only in 1991 that the World Wide Web standards were released for the first time. In 1993, I think the first browser, Mosaic, was released. Um, and it was only in 1994 that Stanford University um, opened its high-wire electronic press. Um, and interestingly, that was the same year as the Human Genome Project started its open access website. And of course, the publicly funded Human Genome Project has been characterized by open access from the very beginning. And Highwire Press, in 1995, published the Journal of Biological Chemistry, followed shortly by the Journal of Neurosciences, and then the Journal of Clinical Investigation, which, to its enormous credit, was open access in 1995 and has remained so. Um, and then PubMed itself, which is the repository, the um, indexing system that is essentially the monopoly provider in biomedicine, uh, started in January 1996. And PubMed, which has been extraordinarily disruptive, had two very dramatic effects for a biomedical researcher. The first, it was the end of searching in libraries through volume after volume of Index Medicus. And I remember spending a lot of my youth doing that. Very thumbed volumes. Um, the other extraordinary effect was that it obliterated the scientific literature before 1964. Because it was only catalogued back to 1964 in the first instance. And of course, now that this online tool was available, people stopped looking at Index Medicus before 1994. Most people didn't realize it even existed. And there was this extraordinary um, obliteration of that literature. And I'm pleased to say that that has been recovered because uh, PubMed now goes all the way back, uh, thanks to the foresight of um, a very good partner of the Wellcome Trust, David Lippmann, who works um, and, and is responsible for PubMed. So I first became aware of open access in the late 1990s, and it was via being a, a co-author of a, an immunological textbook called Immunobiology. And that was published by a very innovative publisher called Vitek Trax, um, who founded the first open access stable by Med Central, and uh, the very distinguished US scientist Harold Varmus, who of course later went on to be the director of the National Institutes of Health. Um, and they set out the issues very, very clearly. So what is open access? Well, the key elements of it are that the published material, whatever it is, um, is made available on the web in its entirety. Uh, it's free for anyone to read anywhere in the world who has access clearly to a computer screen. Um, it's free of copyright and can be used for derivative purposes. So it can be used by anyone else for whatever purpose. Um, it should be made available in a repository so that it can be discovered easily. And there is an etiquette that authorship should be attributed. And I think that those are the essential features of open access. And when I joined the Wellcome Trust in 2003, um, I was fortunate because I was already aware of the importance of open access as a topic. And in fact, my very first act, um, I think before I actually took up the position of director full-time, was to go to a meeting at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Bethesda. 
And that refined the principles I've just set out for open access into a statement, uh, the Bethesda statement. And in fact, there are now dozens of uh, similar statements. So there's the Bethesda statement. Shortly after the Bethesda was the Berlin statement. There's the Budapest statement. And that's only the statements beginning with B. Um, and one of these rather splendid aspects of open access is that the sort of people who are interested in it are themselves um, a, a very meticulous internet users and bloggers. And so if you want to find out everything you ever wanted to know about open access and a lot more beside, then it's worth reading Peter Suba, um, who works at Earlham College um, and at SPARC, and that's an acronym for the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition. And the history is there in all its glory. But the core argument for open access is that it maximizes the, research, the value of research by maximizing its distribution. It's as simple as that. And why would we not all want the fruits of our scholarship to be disseminated as widely as possible? It's obvious that that's the way they will have their maximum impact. But there are two sets of very well-established vested interests who've been used to publishing the old way for a very long time. And those are the academic community, for whom the model was very well established. All scientists knew what the brand leaders were. Um, academic recognition and promotion depended as much as on what, in what journal you published as what you actually discovered. Um, the academics were also intimately involved in many of the scholarly societies. And the societies, a number of those, including the Royal Society, had their own journals from which they made good money. Um, so that was a, a, one set of vested interests which had an interest really in keeping things pretty much as it has been. And then the second obvious vested interest is the publishing industry itself, um, which was making very good money out of this, um, an important UK industry, and some very powerful brands to protect. And then there were the intermediaries who were the funders of research, and the librarians themselves, who understood the economics and were struggling with library budgets that could no longer cope with the spiraling rate of subscriptions. So the stage was set for a battle. And the next meeting I went to, and it was the first time I'd ever given a meeting to a librarians conference, was the LIBA conference uh, in 2004, which was at the National Library of Russia in St. Petersburg. And I had an extraordinary lesson when I went there because I'd never been into a library before where I couldn't see any books. You go into that building, it's quite a new building, and there are literally no books visible anywhere at all. And, of course, it is a closed-stack library, very characteristic of uh, communist-era libraries. And a very powerful symbol that knowledge is power. And it's very appropriate to give this talk at the Bodleian Library because... Libraries, historically, have played an extraordinarily important role as the focus of both scholarly and religious communities, with the two often coming together, as in institutions such as Oxford at the time of its foundation. So I could start with the burning of the Library of Alexandria, and burning of libraries is something that recurs through history. Uh, but let's start in Oxford in the 14th century, uh, where John Wycliffe was the master of Balliol briefly in 1360, and he opposed corruption in the Catholic Church. And his argument was that the text of the Bible had primacy over the established Catholic Church. 
And therefore, his mission was to translate the Bible into uh, vernacular and make it available to the people. And in a rather splendid example of what I would call true academic freedom, uh, the convocation of the university at the time refused to accept a papal bull um, and he was briefly put under house arrest in Oxford, but basically um, not much further happened to him. Um, and uh, he died towards the end of the 14th century. Uh, but by 1408, things had changed, and Thomas Arundel, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, held a synod in Oxford, um, from which something called the Arundelian Constitutions in 1408 were, came out. And they forbade, upon pain of the greater excommunication, the unauthorized translation of any text of the scriptures into English or any other tongue by way of a book, pamphlet, treatise, or the reading of such. And Oxford by then, it was not such a strong defender of uh, the freedoms and actually did um, collaborate in, in, in uh, providing a list of literature that was thought to be unsuitable. Um, this argument hasn't gone away. So in 1850, uh, the Public Libraries Act was the first of a series of acts which enabled local councils to provide free public libraries, which were funded by a levy of a halfpenny rate. Um, and I'll just give you a few quotes from Hansard, because they're quite amusing. And Hansard, of course, is now available online. Um, and so here, this is something that would have been quite difficult to find previously. So we have Mr. Law, who was the Honourable Charles Law, who was a Conservative judge. He objected to the bill as one which enabled the richer and more influential inhabitants of a community to tax the poorer inhabitants for their own special purposes. Nothing could be more tyrannical than to place in a municipal body the control over a library purchased without the consent, and perhaps against the will, of one-third of the inhabitants of the district, and not practically accessible even to the considerable proportion of those who paid for it. In response, Mr. Brotherton, who was the first MP for Salford, who was a free trader and reformer, considered taxation most beneficial that tended to raise the character of the people. And after all, the tax which this bill permitted, for it was a permissive measure merely, was only one halfpenny in the pound. It was most incorrect to describe this as a bill to enable the richer inhabitants of a borough, the richer inhabitants of a borough to collect libraries for their own use at the expense of the poorer inhabitants. The honourable and learned gentleman the member for the University of Cambridge grounded his opposition to the bill by misrepresenting every part of it. And Mr. Law was the member for the University of Cambridge. And then we have the rather wonderful Colonel Sibthorpe, who was a conservative, thought this bill nothing more nor less than an attempt to impose a general increase of taxation on Her Majesty's subjects, and doubted whether it was legitimate to introduce such a measure, excepting in a committee of the whole House. He would be happy at any time to contribute his might towards providing libraries and proper recreations for the humbler classes in larger towns. But he thought that however excellent food for the mind might be, food for the body was what was now wanted, most wanted for the people. He did not like reading at all, and he hated it when at Oxford. But he could not see how one halfpenny in the pound would be enough to enable town councils to carry into effect the immense powers they would have by this bill. And Sibthorpe spent 30 years in Parliament as representative for Lincoln, and he was absolutely convinced that uh, any changes from the Britain of his youth uh, were absolutely awful. He thought railways were a passing fad, and they would soon give way to a return to stagecoaches. Um, so why have I gone on this little diversion? 
Well, because I want to go back to Hansard and the minutes of the Select Committee of Science and Technology who inquired into open access in 2004. Um, when a publisher, whose name I will spare, said on the 1st of March, speak to people in the medical profession, and they will say the last thing they want are people who may have illnesses reading this information, marching into surgeries and asking things. We need to be very careful with this very, very high-level information. And so, even now, there's the idea that knowledge is power, and we mustn't give too much knowledge uh, to people that really shouldn't have that knowledge. And of course, libraries continue to arouse emotion, um, and the local authority cuts brought library funding again to the fore again, again. And there was a debate in the House of Commons on the 25th of January this year, uh, when Lisa Nandy, who's a Labour member for Wigan, quoted the novelist Edward Bul Bulwer-Lytton, who ironically was the Whig member of Parliament for Lincoln, at the same time as Colonel Charles Sibthorpe. And he spoke at the opening of the Manchester Free Public Library in 1852. And I quote, I call it an arsenal, for books are weapons, whether for war or for self-defense. What minds may be destined to grow up and flourish under the shade of this tree of knowledge which you have now planted, none of us can conjecture. And at the very same ceremony, Dickens said, in this institution, special provision has been made for the working classes by means of a free lending library. This meeting cherishes the earnest hope that the books thus made available will prove a source of pleasure and improvement in the cottages, the garrets, and the cellars of the poorest of our people. So after that little diversion, let me move back to open access, and I want to come back to the vested interests and where this is all going. So to talk about the academics first, um, the argument is that we have a system and we believe that it has flaws, but it does work. Uh, we can find all the literature we want. Um, and there are these good surrogate markers for recognition and promotion, which is where we've published. Um, but equally, there are very strong complaints. Um, in biomedicine, there's a strong sensation that there's a tyranny of publication in particular three groups of titles, the cell press journals, nature and science in biomedicine, and people complain about the process of getting published, how the third reviewer uh, can prevent the publication of a paper for months, if not years, and that refereeing has become competitive, and that the decisions are made at journals no longer by senior academics, but by journal staff who tend to be cautious and conservative. Um, people recognize that uh, there's too much emphasis on where you publish for the research assessment exercise and for academic promotion. And the term impact factor, um, everyone recognizes that this is a very weak measure of journals and that it can be gained. And I just quote from Blackwell Publishing News in January 2006. One of the most commonly discussed issues at meetings of publications or editorial committees is impact factor and how to raise it. We are now including in every issue of Journal News a piece by Ian Craig, our bibliometrics analyst, and in this issue we have a longer article on how to commission review articles. As is now generally known, review articles tend to attract more citations than primary articles. So an absolutely explicit admission of tactical um, working of journals to increase their impact factors. The other problem is that I think that there are perverse incentives from our present 
publication model against collaboration. Uh, are you the first author? Are you the last author? Um, these are increasingly being overcome by necessity in some fields. So, for example, genomics and genetics, where you need large teams of people and the academic community can only do the research if they collaborate in large teams, um, and in disciplines such as physics. Um, another perverse incentive is that there's really very little reward in generating a data set, because the generators of data sets don't get acknowledged in the same way as someone who has published a paper. And I think there's increasingly inefficient sharing of data, because data is power, to academics, and so if you hold your data, then you prevent the maximum value being extracted from it. And I think that epidemiology is a field where data sharing has a long way to go. So plenty of vested interests in the academic world. Now, the vested interests are obvious for the publishers. They're driven by income, they're driven by market share. Uh, they all recognize that they're facing disruptive technology. And we've seen some interesting and predictable responses to that. So there's been very intensive mergers and acquisitions in the general publishing industry. Um, journals are increasingly being bundled, as the librarians here will know. Um, and you have to buy a whole lot of stuff uh, you don't want in order to get the stuff you do want. Um, journals are offering, in some cases, deals which give you online access only. But of course, the disadvantage to that is that if you stop the subscription, you've lost the material, whereas before, if you stopped subscribing to a journal, well, at least you had the back copies in your sub-basement. Um, so there are all sorts of slightly risky um, uh, situations out there at the moment. Um, and talking of the intermediaries, uh, the libraries and the funders do find themselves in much the same position. And what's been interesting over the last few years is the high degree of... Um, partnership between, for example, in the United Kingdom, the funders of biomedical research, who all have now introduced similar policies around open access um, and have, for example, clubbed together to fund the very important repository, UK PubMed Central, which now holds millions of free full-text papers. So I now want to look to the future um, in my closing remarks. Um, we recently held a meeting uh, in collaboration between the Wellcome Trust, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and the Max Planck Institute, um, bringing together a lot of academics who were interested in uh, the dissemination of biomedical research scholarship. And I have to say that there is an extremely strong consensus that there needs to be a change, um, and that the academic community itself needs to take back control of the publishing of our own research. Um, the Wellcome Trust mandated open access publishing to all its grant holders in 2006. Um, and as of today, well over 90% of the papers that we fund the research of are now published in journals which are technically compliant with our open access policy. But it's still the case that only 50% of the publications that we are responsible for, at least part of the funding, fully meet our conditions and end up in UK PubMed Central within six months of their original publication. Um, and so far, we've applied mainly carrot uh, to persuade people to do this, but increasingly, we're now going to move to stick, and we're now contacting individual authors who appear not to be compliant with our policy. But... The fundamental argument is that a piece of research simply isn't complete until it's published. 
And I would argue that the costs of publication are a cost of research like any other, and that, in fact, publishers provide a service like many other service providers as part of the research process. So the costs, it does cost money to publish, it must cost money, but those costs are no different, really, to buying the chemicals for your experiment, uh, running your centrifuge, paying the electricity bills for your laboratory. It's just another cost of research, and it needs to be built into research as an intrinsic part of the research process. And the role of journals is purely and simply to provide a service to the academic community. And the question for the academic community is, is the service that's being provided at the moment what the academic community really wants and needs. And I think that there are now an increasing number of open access models available to the community where in the gold model, so-called, uh, you pay a publication fee and the publication is put out online at the moment of publication, free for anyone to use, uh, free of copyright restrictions, typically with a Creative Commons license. And the open access models are showing financial sustainability. Um, they're also, there's quite a lot of evidence that they show high usage, that there are more downloads of papers that are published in open access journals. I think the jury is still out on whether there's actually more citation of papers that are published through open access. And this may not be the case at the moment because actually the most research active biomedical scientists have the best journal access. And at the moment, it's still true that they're not really limited in their own academic environments from access to the very large part of the um, scholarly output. But the Public Library of Science, PLOS One, is now the largest journal in the world. And it's got there in a matter of a very small number of years. Um, and PLOS One is now subsidizing the more um, difficult titles in the series to get access to for scientists. Um, so we have a model that is now sustainable and it is an innovative model. So PLOS is active in experimenting with different ways of presenting data. And of course journals are scalable on the internet in a way that they simply aren't in print. So of course the thing that historically limited the number of papers that a journal could accept was the number of trees it was prepared to chop down basically. It was the thickness of the journal um, and how much it cost to post. Um, but journals now can scale almost infinitely. And they can also be organized, if you get the metadata right, in highly flexible ways. So PLOS One, in principle, can be presented as a series of 5,000 different journals by just slicing it and dicing it and then presenting it with front material in different ways. And this, I think, poses a very substantial a substantial disruptive opportunity to PLOS One. Um, and what we now see happening in the journal industry in 2011 is that PLOS One cloning is happening extremely fast with the commercial publishers scrabbling to produce their own PLOS One equivalents. Now, it's not only the way you publish research, but I think there's also a changing nature of scholarship that follows the internet and all of the developments. So there was a very important element of scholarship, which if I can call it, was uncovering the past. And that was difficult because you had to know where to find the materials, how to get into the uh, stacks of the Bodleian Library or indeed the National Library of Russia. Uh, it was difficult to find stuff out. 
But it isn't difficult to find stuff out now. Um, and I learned this the hard way when I was doing my PhD. I, I, I did a PhD on the genetics of expression of a receptor for a system of information called complement on red cells. And a paper had recently been published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine that had showed that this was possibly a, a, an inherited disease predisposition gene to an autoimmune disease called SLE. Um, and I uh, worked away and uh, discovered, in fact, that it wasn't an inherited predisposition. Um, but when I came to do, uh, write my thesis, of course, when people write PhDs, um, then, as now, I think, you do a much more in-depth literature research than people typically do when they're writing an ordinary scientific paper. And so I really did go back through Index Medicus all the way. And I discovered that, actually, in the 1930s, it had first been discovered that there was variation in this complement receptor. And, in fact, that fact had been rediscovered again in the late uh, 1950s. And the paper that had set me off, um, which had been published just about the time I started my PhD, failed to acknowledge either of those papers. And, indeed, to be absolutely fair to the scientists, they simply didn't know this work had been done before. Um, and so you can find that sort of stuff out much more easily now than you ever could before. And of course, the lesson to a scientist is that you really need to do your background research before you do your research rather than after it. Um, and some things, I'm afraid, will never change. So one thing that's changed in scholarship is the rise of PubMed and other scholarly search engines. Um, and uh, PubMed itself, of course, was just an index system, but now PubMed Central and UK PubMed Central um, actually hold the full papers. But one of the critical things within them is that they depend on the ability to reuse material. So copyright actually is an absolutely critical issue. And when you sign away your copyright, you're actually signing away the ability for um, engines to do text mining, to use the information in your paper, because technically you can't do that, and the publishers, in theory, will stop that happening. Um, now, of course, the world does exist before 1964, and in fact, the Wellcome Trust has had a very good partnership with the National Library of Medicine to back-digitize a whole series of journals um, right back to um, their foundation, typically in the 19th century. Um, and we've persuaded as many publishers as we can to, but some are still owned by publishers and societies that believe they can make money from doing this themselves, and so the availability of the past literature is still somewhat sketchy. The other change that's happening in research, which is, again, I think driven by the internet and the size of data sets, is that I believe that we're moving from communities of scholars to teams of scholars. And I think it's an interesting question as to where Oxford finds itself in that transition. Much more research is done on an open basis. So the Human Genome Project... But everything that's followed that, the Single Nucleotide Polymorphism Consortium, the Structural Genomics Consortium. But the problem with all of these projects is everyone accepts that they provide a massive amount of very important data, but it does create credit and attribution problems in academia. And I have to say that I think this is a problem that universities have to solve. It's not a problem in either industry or typically in research institutes where both recognize that their work is done by teams of people. Uh, but it's a severe problem in universities. And I have to say that I think it is up to the university sector and the funders of universities, be it the funding councils or indeed the research funders, to help fix this problem. 
I think that we're seeing the death of the traditional paper because of the complexity of the ways of expressing data, which means it's much harder to express that data in the linear form of text. So we're seeing new and exciting ways to express data, and there's huge imagination in the way data is shown. Um, this is not a room which is friendly to PowerPoint, otherwise I could have shown you some of the different ways people are using to show very complex data sets, which are often multidimensional. Um, but all of this makes certain that data use can be maximized, and I think that it's the sharing of data that is at least as important as the open access to the literature. So you need not only to be able to read the literature, but also to have access to the data that sits behind it. And only that way will the very expensive research that we and others fund um, achieve its maximum value. There are, I think, going to be new ways to both write and indeed update papers. So peer review, historically, has been something that's always been done before publication. But actually, it's something that can easily be done post-publication. And it's quite interesting to contrast the different academic communities. So in the sciences, the peer review happens before publication. The paper then comes out. And whilst it may be torn apart, and typically is in journal clubs, these are essentially private events. And scientists are extremely cautious about writing nasty things about each other's papers on the web. And although PLOS, for example, has that as a facility, it's hardly been used. But if you look at the humanities, it sort of works the other way around. So a piece of scholarship, which is going to be published, let's say, by OUP, is refereed before, but by a rather small number of people. The work is then published. And then there's a whole industry of review and that review counts as scholarship in, in the humanities community, which often will viciously take apart someone's piece of work. So it's quite interesting how two completely different cultures can operate in parallel in academia. So there are the opportunities for post-publication peer review, and I think this will happen. And there are already things like the Faculty of a Thousand, which starts to highlight papers, and I think increasingly the community will highlight the papers that are good, and I think that that's, again, another opportunity for these very large uh, collections of, of publications, such as PLOS One. Um, there's a whole opportunity for community annotation in all sorts of different ways. This isn't really the topic of the lecture, but I'll, I'll, I'll say something about it briefly, which is education is changing as well. The open source lecture is here to stay. MIT is putting its material out. I'm not sure how much material comes from Oxford, but this MIT, I think, have rightly seen this as advertising for the university. You get a lot from seeing a lecture online, but not the same from the experience of being at MIT and having everything goes with it. Um, I think that it's only a matter of, I hope, a short time before the death of the traditional multi-author textbook. Why aren't textbooks now produced entirely online? You then don't have to wait for the last author of a multi-author textbook to submit when the first author may have submitted a year before. Um, why don't we move to updating reviews? Why do scientists write the same review again and again and again in different places? Uh, there should be much less quantity and much more quality. We're beginning to see scholarly use of Wikipedia. So Gene Wiki, for example, has National Institutes of Health funding. Uh, the Sanger Institute's now using Wikipedia. Wikipedia is actually a source of much scholarly material. Um, so I'll end with a question mark and a challenge to Oxford. 
which is where is Oxford in all of this? Um, and I'm not sure whether the Vice Chancellor certainly isn't here today, but um, the Oxford University Research Archive, which I looked at before coming, um, appears to be completely voluntary, and there appears to be no clear university policy on archiving whatsoever. Um, the University of Oxford, of course, has its own very major conflict of interest because OUP is a very important contributor to the coffers. Um, and I have to say that OUP, although it has Oxford open, uh, appears responsive rather than being innovative. So at June 2010, there were only six fully open access journals in the OUP stable and 90 hybrid ones um, offering basically uh, paid um, opportunities to publish. But the uptake of the hybrid model for 2009 um, is fairly pathetic, 5.9% overall. Um, and if you look at bioinformatics, 31% uh, of the papers in bioinformatics were, took the open access choice. Uh, but in the humanities, social science, and law, 2.5%. Um, now, the open access movement has been driven very largely through the scientific community. But I would argue that it's actually the humanities that have the most to gain from this. Because the distribution of scientific literature is actually extremely wide very expensive, but wide, the distribution of the humanities literature is much narrower. And therefore, if scholars in the humanities really want their material to be read, then they need to get it out there open access. So, I end with two challenges. And the first is the University of Oxford to develop its own strategic vision of how to pursue and disseminate education and scholarship in this new digital era. And my second challenge is to everyone in this room to ensure that you maximise the value of your individual and collective scholarship by disseminating it most effectively. Thank you for your attention.